Thank you everyone for joining in. We will be um, on our way in a few minutes. And if you just stepped in, I'm sending you an invitation to panelists. This is a excellent way to participate, to join in on the class for things to get going. And for everyone who's watching on Facebook, welcome. Also a good morning, also a good afternoon. This is session number eight of the Nazar Sanctity and Separatists with Rabbi David Silver, who we've had the pleasure of learning with since, since this February. Um, and this is the, if I am uh, making sure I have the date correctly, this is the, this is the, this is the last session on this class, but never the last session in learning. Just, and today's class, this ongoing class has been on the topic of the Nazir sanctity and separateness within Jewish tradition. There are a range of views concerning the Nazir and this session will focus on the biblical <laughs> view of the Nazarite as it emerges from the description of the Nazir in the sixth chapter of Bamidbar, as well as biblical narratives and prophetic allusions. Right. And if you have questions, please feel welcome to ask them in chat, either on Zoom or on Facebook, both chats are monitored. Or when Rabbi Silver pauses for questions, my only technical request is if you are joining us on Zoom and you are a panelist, to please mute yourself if you're not directly um, asking questions. Otherwise, we can get some unfortunate feedback. Remember that? Rabbi okay. David, Thank you very much. Okay, great. Okay, so today is the last of these sessions on the, the biblical picture of the nausea that which emerges from the various biblical texts. After Pesach, we will look at um, the Mishnah, which has a really different take on the Nazir, or presents us with a totally different take on the Nazir. And it's actually interesting to see the difference between the Mishnaic and the Talmudic approach to Nazir and the biblical approach. So this uh, morning or afternoon, whatever it is for you, I wanted just to uh, complete what we began with last week. Um, just to refresh our memories here. So the person who is possibly represented as a Nazir, uh, apart from Shimshon, obviously is a Nazir, but apart from Shimshon, there's also Shmuel. And as you recall, uh, before his born, his mother, Hannah, makes a vow that if I have a child, I will dedicate the child to God all his life. No razor shall touch his hair. We talked about in what sense one can see Shmuel as a Nazir? Because in the story of Shmuel, outside of the fact that Hanukkah says no razor shall touch his head, there's no stories about Shmuel which suggest in any direct sense that he's a Nazir. So we talked about last week about the idea of a Nazir and made a suggestion about Shmuel. Um, then we moved on to Avshalom, who there, there is an issue with his hair. He cuts his hair. It says, what does that mean? It's not clear. The Talmudic uh, is this debate in the Talmud how often he cut his hair, but when he did cut his hair, it was very heavy. He would weigh his hair and etc. So that was, we'll get to the Mishnah, we'll discuss that at some length. He becomes the prototype of what they call the Nazir Olam, the one who uh, says that he or she will be a Nazir for, for their entire life. In any event, I want to come back to Shmuel briefly, and then we'll move on to uh, the last piece of this. Uh, so Shmuel actually, when one studies the book of Shmuel, one realizes pretty quickly, I think, that the character of Shmuel is based upon Moshe. 
there are many, many parallels between Moshe and Shmuel. Not that Moshe and Shmuel are identical, but the book of uh, Shmuel sets up Shmuel as a Moses figure. And therefore in many ways they are similar. And in many important ways they are different. And that's a whole other story, not a topic. But I mentioned that because there's actually another character in the Bible, quite a significant one, who clearly also is based upon Moshe. It's even more striking. And of course, the character based upon Moshe is none other than Eliel Hanavi. Eliel Hanavi is a Moses figure. He's the ultimate outsider. Uh, he uh, is actually taken back to, to Mount Sinai, to, to Sinai. We sort of re-experiences what Moses uh, experienced at, at Sinai. And in many, many other ways, uh, Eliel is a character drawn and based upon Moshe. So we have these two big characters of the Bible, Moshe and uh, Shmuel and Eliyahu, each of whom is based upon a third character, and that is Moshe. So in thinking about this, uh, there's something else about Eliyahu, which is very interesting. You know, the stories of Eliyahu begin in the first book of Malachim, and then they carry through to what's called the second book of Kings, two kings, probably just one book, but in any event, two kings. And pretty early on in Malachim, Eliyahu was sent to heaven. Um, already in the second chapter of, of Malachim Bed, Eliyahu was already ascending to heaven in the chariot. But in chapter one of Malachim Bed, we have the following story. So Achaziah, the king of Israel, remember, of course, that in the book of Kings, there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, this, or the northern kingdom, as it's called. Most of Eliyahu's work as prophet is directed against the northern kingdom. Most. His main protagonist is Achav. Achav is the king of the northern kingdom. In any event, uh, in the very beginning of Malachim Bet, it tells us about King Achaziah. Achaziah fell through a lattice in his chamber. He's in the Northern Kingdom and he's very severely hurt and he's very ill, near death. It says in the very beginning of Malachim Bet, in the very second Pasuk, so he says to his somebody in his court, go to the, um, go and inquire from the God of Ekron. Ekron is one of the Philistine cities. Go and inquire of the God of Ekron if I will live from this illness. So he's inquiring of the God of foreign God. Uh, so the messenger, uh, no, so they, he sends his messengers out and then the, next, the, the third book, Malach Hashem Diber But God's messenger speaks to Eliyahu and says to him, Kum Shomron. Go and greet the messengers of the king of Shomron. Shomron is the capital city of the north. And say to him, what? Why are you inquiring of the God of the God of the Philistines, the God of Ekron? Isn't there a God in Israel? Why do you go to a foreign God? Therefore, 
כה השם, אמיתו השערית השומרו תלמד ממנו, כי מות תמות, ויהיה direct. And now these messengers return back to the king of Israel. This is found in verse number six. They tell him what Eliyahu said, pretty much word for word. And um, so the king, and they don't know who this guy is. I mean, they, some man has met them and told them this. Because you didn't inquire of God, you inquired of the God of Ekron, you will die. So they tell the king this. And in verse number seven, Vaidaber Alehem, Ma Mishpato Ish Asher Allah Likratchem. Here, Ma Mishpat means, right, means what does he look like? What sort of person is he? What sort of person came to you and gave you this, made this speech to you? Vayomru, a love, Ish Baal Seyar, the Azar or Azur Bimatna. Vayomer Eliyah Hatishbi. Oh, the guy who came to see us, well, he probably didn't give his name, but he was an Isayar, a very hairy man. And around his waist was a leather belt. And the king says, that's Elio Hatishbi. So here we have actually a description, a physical description of Elio Hanavi. And he is, among other things, the two descriptions. Well, one of them is Isayar. He's a hairy person. And now the question is, what does that suggest? What is this image of Eliyahu that we have over here? A hairy person with a leather belt. And so the Ishsayar, that does remind us of the Nazir. Um, so the Ishsayar sounds like, with a leather belt, it sounds like somebody, which is true of Eliyahu, who's not a member of society. He, he's the ultimate outsider. And that, when you read the Tanakh about Eliyahu Hanavi, it certainly does sound that way because he declares there'll be a famine in the land, he just checks out, he goes someplace else. In the story over here, he's sitting on top of a mountain. So this idea of Eliyahu Hanavi as the outsider, Moshe, Moshe is an outsider, but Eliyahu is a super outsider. And by the way, we know nothing about his personal life at all. Unlike Moshe, okay, Moses' children don't follow in his path, and uh, he doesn't speak their language, and all that is true. But at the end of the day, Moshe is at the center of the community. Moshe is instructing the people. Moshe is leading the people. Moshe prays for the people. So Moshe is a funny combination. He is the outsider, no question about it but he's the outsider who actually is the ultimate insider in the sense that he's, he's directing or trying to direct where people should go. He has a vision for the people, et cetera. With Eliyahu, he, uh, he's completely outside. He has no family that we know of. Like Moshe, he comes, he's, he's had to speak. He's, he's from the other side of the Jordan. And when he ascends to heaven, 
dies, ascends to heaven, he goes back to that place, right? Moshe, no one knows where Moshe's buried. With Elio, but I'm not even sure he's buried. I mean, we don't know. He's the ultimate outsider. And this is represented by the way he dresses. And two things, he has a leather belt and he has Isayar. It's, it, it reminds me in a certain way, I mean, Esav is that way, right? Esav is supposed to Yaakov. Yaakov is Ishtam Yoshevo Halim, which probably doesn't mean he's a, you know, pure of heart, but whatever. First thing he does is trick his brother, but he's a civilized person. He dwells in tents, he's a civilized person. That's probably what it means in the context. And Esav, by contrast, is a Yodeyat Sayyid Ishsadeh. Esav is in the field. Yaakov's in the home, the difference between them. So the, the wild hair, because the hair is the part of the body you can actually control. You can cut your hair, you can trim your hair, you can fashion your hair, etc. When your hair just grows wild, right? When your hair grows wild, as the Nazir's hair grows wild, it represents the fact that the Nazir is not part of normal society. In the case of Shimshon, we might say it's not part of society, period. Uh, but Again, in the Chumash, it's a temporary state. So here we have another interesting parallel between Shmuel on one hand and, uh, and Elio on the other. And to think about this, because Shmuel is an interesting character. Uh, he also has no children who follow in his path. That's true. Um, he is a judge. He judges the people, but he has, he sort of moves around from one place to the next. He, he teaches in different places. He circulates around. Um, so it's something to think about in terms of a Nazi character. And once again, if we think of it as a Nazi character, it underscores the idea that at least in the Tanakh, the Nazir represents the person who is, who is who's outside regular society, normal society. In the Chumash, it's limited to, to X amount of days. You may leave society temporarily. When you get to the characters of the Bible, there's no sense that these are this is a temporary state of being, none whatsoever. It sounds like this is who you are. Shmuel is this way. So Elio, I wouldn't call him a Nazir, but I would say there are elements of Nazirut present both in Shmuel and also in Elio. And it's interesting that each of them is a character who's based upon Moshe. There's a piece of Moshe. Moshe, of course, is the outsider. So there's a piece of Moshe which plays out both in Shmuel and Eliyahu. I'm not saying it plays out in an identical fashion, but there's something common to these two characters. Okay, let me just stop you for a moment and take comments or questions about this. All right, I see, um, I see one comment in the chat that I want to highlight uh, from Zella asking, is this the first mention of Eliyahu? No, this is towards almost the last mention of Eliyahu. Eliyahu appears uh, initially um, I believe it's chapter 17 of First Kings. Yeah. This is the next to last story of Elio. Elio appears right after we're told about the rebuilding of Jericho, which is in Malachim Aleph. And um, Malachim Aleph, uh, let's see. Yes, Malachim Aleph is at the end of chapter 16. And Elio appears in chapter 17. That's chapter 17 of First Kings. It's actually very interesting. And we'll encounter this in a few minutes with a different character. There's no 
chapter 17 of First Kings, the first chapter deals with Eliyahu. And Eliyahu, the Tishbite from Gilad said, there shall be no rain except if I say so. And what's very curious is there's no introduction to him. It doesn't tell us anything about him. The first thing we ever hear is we don't, we don't know he exists, actually. Eliyahu, the Tishbite said the following. And one, it raises a different question right there, the first verse. I, sw I swear by the God before whom I stand, there shall be no rain or dew except at my bidding. And who is he? Who is this guy? I mean, it's, it raises a different question whether the reader of this story, when, when someone was reading it 2,000 years ago or whatever, and it said, Eliyahu the Tishbi said, is it assumed by the book that the reader who reads that verse knows who he is right away before reading further? It's hard to know what the reader is presumed to know. It's a very interesting question that's hard to know. There are other examples of this as well, where you have someone mentioned. Um, I'll give you another example of when Moshe, the story of Amalek in the Chumash, chapter 17 yeah. of, Shmot, of Shmot, and Amalek attacked Israel. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some people and go fight. Who's Joshua? The Torah never told us who Yoshua is. So that's the first we ever hear about Yoshua. And Moshe said to Yoshua, go and fight. So again, is it that we don't know who he is? We'll find out later. It's one possibility. Or is it presumed that the reader knows who Yoshua is? Because there were hundred stories about Yeshua. So we don't have to explain who he is. We know who he is. That's a, that's a, a question in general. In any event, uh, Elio appears first in chapter 17. He doesn't appear in every single chapter till the end of Malachi Ma'ala, but in most of them. And he appears in the first two chapters of Malachi Bet. The second chapter is Elio ascending to heaven. So that's the second, sort of towards the end of and why the books are divided is particular way is a good question, but this is towards the end of the Elio cycle. And the next cycle, of course, will be Elisha. He's, he, has a, he, has a, he has a disciple, he's a pupil. As is Moshe, his pupil is Elisha. Okay, anything else before we continue now with wrapping up this, the biblical Nazir? Anybody else? If not, we'll just continue. So far, we've looked at Shimshon, the main Nazir. Then there's the Shmuel. Then there's the, um, I mentioned that Eliyahu was, a, was a, I wouldn't call him a Nazir, but sort of elements of Nazirut. And then there's Avshalom that we talked about last time. We mentioned Avshalom, who has qualities of Nazirut. He has the hair, which he cuts periodically. He also takes a vow. Remember that in the Torah, Nizirut is a function of a vow that you take. And we know that Avshalom takes a vow when he comes back, finally returns home. He says to his father, I wanted to go to Hebron because I, to bring sacrifices, I took a vow that I've returned back in peace, I will thank God. And his father says, David says to him, go in peace. Of course, at this point, he's already plotting to overthrow David. And he's going to Hebron to establish his base, his first base, before he marches on Jerusalem, which is exactly what King David did. David anointed himself king, or was anointed in Hebron first. 
in the beginning of Shmuel Bet, and then from there David moved to Jerusalem. So he's really following quite literally in his father's footsteps. So we have with Avshalom, we have a vow, and we have the hair, of course. Uh, and we had something else I mentioned last week, which is the fire story. Avshalom burns down the field of Yoav. So, and what's interesting is that fire is central to the Shimshon story. So there is some sense in the Tanakh, that the Talmud takes Avshalom to be an actual nausea. But the point is there's some sense at least in the Tanakh that there are elements of Nazirut present in Avshalom. And what I had focused on was the following, that the Nazir is one who breaks away from, from his family. He can't come into contact with any deceased, any corpse, even his own parents, even his own closest relatives. The regular Kohen does not come in contact, forbidden to come in contact with the dead, but may come in contact with his, with his closest relatives, not the high priest, but the normal priest. So the Nazir in this sense is like the Kohen Gadol. And if one wants to formulate that slightly differently, the Nazir is the one who has no connection to, it, to, to his parents. And that, of course, is true of Avshalom. One of the interesting features of the Avshalom story is he wants to overthrow his father and become the king, which can be seen in two different ways. One is he wants to succeed his father. He's continuing his father's line. He's just getting rid of his father. But he's the son of David is now the king. Or you could say something else, that no, he doesn't want to succeed his father. He wants to erase his father and start all over again with a new line. So Avshalom clearly wants to erase his father and start over with a new line, though that issue does come up in the Avshalom story, not for a problem now. And the same is true of King David. King David could have presented himself as successor to Saul. He's Saul's son-in-law. He's married to Saul's daughter. So if David wanted to, he could be see, present himself that I am Saul's successor. And if his wife, Michal, has a baby, that baby could be the next king. That would be Saul's grandson and David's son. And the line of Saul would continue through David. That's a very live option. David rejects that. And Michal has no children. And I suspect it's not by accident either. In David's argument with Michal, the last word is, and she had no children till the day of her death. So in those, those are both two instances where a potential successor rejects a father figure. In the case of Saul, it's a father-in-law. In the case of Absalom, it's his actual father. So there you have a nausea, another nausea quality of, of present in Absalom, which is why the Mishnah and the Gemara can take Absalom to be a really nausea figure. But we'll get to that with the Mishnah. So that's very interesting. I wanted to mention one other, in conclusion, one other character who possibly is a nausea. The word nausea does not, is not mentioned. It's never mentioned at all in anybody, any particular person except for Shimshon. Shimshon is actually called the nausea. Nazir Elohim Yana that's Shimshon. Shmuel, no. Avshalom, no. Eliyahu, no. Though they have those qualities. But there is one other person, also the word Nazir is not mentioned, but I want to spend uh, time uh, now on this last character and then we'll sum things up. This character appears first also in the Book of Kings. Uh, it appears in the Book of Kings 
uh, in the um, story of the destruction of the house of Achav. Achav in the book of Kings is Eliol's protagonist. And he's a very central person in the book of Kings and Eliol's life. Eliol spends a lot of time trying to bring Achav back, one could say. That's the famous story of Eliol and Mount Carmel. He's trying to impress upon Achav and the people. They've got to make a choice. You can't stand in two places. Eliol Hanavi is one path. And you can't stand in two places. That's what, there's a fanatical side to Eliyahu. We'll get to that because it's related to the Nazir, I believe. The Nazir is holy unto God. The Nazir answers to God only. And the Nazir, for example, in the case of Eliyahu, has zero interest in, 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 in kingship. He doesn't trust any kings. He doesn't deal with any kings. There are other people who do. In the Elio story, if you recall, there's Ovadia. Ovadia works for Achav. And we're told he saved a hundred prophets' lives. He worked with Achav. And when Elio meets Ovadia, he's very curt with him. He says, go tell your master, you know. And Ovadia's taken aback. I'm Ovadia, he says. I'm a, I'm, I'm a God-fearing person. I saved a hundred prophets. That's nice. You go to Achav and you tell him is here. So Elio has zero use for those people. It raises really a very fundamental question about working within contexts that are problematic. And do you choose to work with that or do you choose to, to opt out? Elio has a very simple answer, you opt out. He's not interested in working with the king. It's not true of Elisha, his disciple, but Elio is somebody, he'd rather be in the mountains and the deserts. He doesn't, he has a, he doesn't trust kingship, period. In that sense, he's similar to Shmuel as well. Shmuel doesn't believe in kingship. And he says, why? You have a king. King's name is God. God is your king. Human kingship is problematic from day one. In fact, it's idolatry, Shmuel says. Fundamentally what he says. Apart from the fact that king's going to rip you off. He's going to cheat you. He's going to, because, because power corrupts. That's Shmuel's view. And Eliyahu's view even more so. So that's something else. We think about the Nazir, by the way, the pluses and the minus of the Nazir. These are two single-minded people. You serve God and only God. And for Eliyahu, you can't serve anybody else. So that's the, that's what they believe. Uh, and that's a good question. You know, it's an interesting question because the truth of the matter is, and not true only of politics, it's true of many situations. You get involved with, some institution and every institution because it's human is gonna be flawed. And especially when people in the institution have power, because sometimes their primary concern is keeping power. And then everything else gets secondary. And we've seen that throughout all of human history, including currently, people wanna stay in power and they'll do many bad things in order to stay in power. That's the human condition. And we also says, don't get involved. Forget it, you don't get involved. That's it, we all, and Shmuel has deep misgivings about kingship, that's one of the key issues with Shmuel. That's his, God said, listen to the people. But Shmuel doesn't want to listen to the people because they think the people are, are wrong. So that's the issue with Shmuel. That's the conflict, the inner conflict of Shmuel. In any event, the house of Achav is, is gonna be utterly destroyed. 
Achav himself is not represented in the narrative stories as being the worst guy who ever lived. There's a part of Achav that actually respects Eliyahu. The problem is he's married to a woman who, who is the opposite. She's a fanatic on the other side, and that's Izebel, Jezebel. She's a fanatical Baal worshiper. Izebel Bat Atbao, her father's name is Atbao. And she's a, she and Elio are polar opposites. In any event, ultimately the house of Achav will be destroyed. And it's destroyed by a fellow whose name is Yehu. Yehu is a very interesting and very bloody character. Uh, he's a, he's a, really a ruthless killer. Um, he kills the king of, kills Achav's family, 70 children, murders all of them. He kills Isabel. He also kills the king of Israel, who's in cahoots with Achav at this point. So it's very interesting when you study the book of Mulachim. On one hand, the house of Achav is doomed. The prophetic statement, the house of Achav will be destroyed. But the one who does it, does it in the most bloody fashion. So first he kills all of Achav's children, the whole family of Achav. He kills Izebel. And then he wants to also kill all the people that worship Baal. So if we open up our Tanachim to the 10th chapter of Second Kings, chapter 10, the first 14 or so verses deal with the killing of the house of Achav. That's the first 14 verses. Then we come to verse number, um, verse number 15. So he's, uh, he's killing all these Baal worshippers, fine. And now, but he wants to kill more people. Up to this point, he's killed the king's family. He kills both the king of Judah and the king of Israel. Achim, the king of Israel. He also kills the king of Judah, who's in cahoots with Achim. Because he has, he has an alliance with Achim. Fine. Now you get to verse number 50, but his work is not done. He still wants to kill all the Baal, all, all the Baal worshippers. Now we have a very strange verse. Chapter 10, verse number 15 of 2 Kings. here we have a very strange verse. Actually, it's very hard to read this verse because it's very hard to tell who's saying what. So he went from there after he's killed a whole bunch of people from the king's retinue. And now he goes from there and he finds Yehonadav ben Rechav, a man named Yehonadav, the son of Rechav, walking towards him. He greets him and he says, are you as wholehearted with me as I am with you, I am. Yehonadav replied, if so, said Yehu, give me your hand. He gave him his hand and Yehu helped him into the chair. You notice that in the translation over here, they put extra words in brackets because the truth of the matter is, it's not so simple in this verse to see who's, talk, who's saying what in the verse. But the idea of it, he meets this fellow named Yehonadav ben Rechav. Now we have no idea who Yehonadav ben Rechav is. He's never been mentioned before in the book, never. 
up to this point in the Bible, he's never mentioned. Again, does the reader know who he is? I don't know, it's hard to know. But we don't know who he is. And, uh, and Yehu was just killed off uh, 70 sons of Achim and he's killed the king of Israel and 42 other people, sparing nobody. And he meets his Yonadav ben Recha. He says, are you as wholeheartedly with me as I am with you? You have the same approach to this, this stuff that I do? And Yonadav seems to say, I do. Give me your hand. He helps him into the chariot, into the Merkava. It's interesting, his name is Rechav, and he goes into the Merkava, which is interesting. There's a play over there, Rechav and Merkava. Fine. He gives him his hand, and Yehu says to him, and the next verse, Vayomer, Come with me, he says. And you will see my zealousness for God. He was taken along in the chariot. So we have his name is Yonadav ben Rechav. And we have the word Merkava, Vayarkivu, and Rechbo in three, the next verse. We have it three times over here. So you will see my zealousness, my God. The word that's used is the word kina, right? Now the word kina, to be zealous, jealous or zealous for God, that's the word that we find in the Torah with Pinchas. And we also find the same word with Elio Hanavi. It's a kanoi, that language, which is why some Midrashim say that Pinchas and Elio are the same person, because they are zealots. Elio is a zealot, Yehu is obviously a, a zealot. He's also a cold-blooded killer. And then we have this Yonadav ben Recha. Now in the story, actually, um, it never says that Yonadav ben Recha kills anybody. That it does not say. But he does accompany him. What his role is as an accompanist is very unclear in the story. It doesn't seem like he's fighting. He says, you will see. He's, he seems to be a witness. Come, you will, you will see my zealousness for God. Yes, I'm, I, I'm also zealous for God. Give me your hand. He gives him his hand and he helps him into the chariot. Now for our purposes, we're, what we wanna figure out is who in the world is Yonadav ben Recha? Of course, we're never told. It's rather astonishing. You have this person, he's gonna be a witness. Who is he? We have absolutely no clue. And this is one or two verses over here in the 10th chapter of Malachim that mentioned Yonadav ben Rechav. But as it turns out, Yonadav ben Rechav, actually here is just a couple of verses, but in a different place in the, um, in the Tanakh, we have a chapter dedicated to Yonadav ben Rechav and to Yonadav's descendants, a whole chapter actually, not in the book of Kings, but in the book of Yirmiyahu. So I thought in this session, we would turn our attention to chapter 35 of Yirmiyahu, where it talks about Yonadav ben Rechav. The truth is, even after we read chapter 35 of Yirmiyahu, we're still not sure about these, who these people are, but it does raise some very interesting questions. So let's take a look at Yirmiyahu chapter 35. If anybody wants to comment, now is a good time. And then uh, when we, for any questions or comments now, and then we will take a look at chapter 35 of Yirmiyahu and conclude our brief study of the biblical Nazir. Does anybody have a comment or question before we move to Yirmiyahu, Periklamit, hey.
It's been quiet. In, oh, I see a hand up. And could yep. uh, Sandra, can you unmute yourself? Sandra? Um, Sandra, if you want to ask questions, you need to unmute. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rabbi Silver, thank you. It's Sandra. Um, yes. So I'm saying that these, this, this final biblical uh, uh, Nazir uh, is or may be this unknown, hitherto unknown person named Yonadab Ben Reha? Yes. Okay, so and does anybody talk about the fact that the Ben Rechav, could that be Ben Rechav? That would be with a chet, this is a chav. Right, since a lot of this stuff interchanges like sins and samach and chav. Sins and, and samachs do, right. I'm not sure what I, I don't know, my, my knowledge, no. I don't know anybody nope. that makes that connection. Doesn't Only mean it's not there. Only because- I'm not familiar with the link there. Okay, so, all right, thank you. All right, let's take a look at chapter 35 of Yirmiyahu. These are the chapters, these chapters of Yirmiyahu have more, some of them have more constellation than the rest of Yirmiyahu, which for the most part is a book about the impending destruction. So this takes place in the days of Yehoiakim, the son of Yoshio was the, was the, was the uh, righteous king who tried to stem the tide of idolatry, but was unsuccessful in preventing the exile, the exile of the, of the, of the Judean kingdom. This is a prophecy to his son Yehoiakim, who generally speaking is seen as a very bad, bad fellow. And Yermio has commanded the following. Very strange command. Yermio has commanded, go to the house of the Rechavites. We never heard of the Rechavites before. Rechavim. Go to the house of the Rechavites. Talk to them. Bring them into God's house, into the temple to one of the uh, offices, the chambers of the temple, and give them wine to drink. That's the command. Invite them to the temple and give them some wine to drink. A mishteh. So that's what Yermio is commanded to do. And Yermio follows God's command. So he takes, this is a different Yermiyahu. So he takes Yazniyahu, the son of Yermiyahu, etc. His brothers, all the children, and all the house of the Rechavites. He invites all the house of the Rechavites to come to a nice party, to bring them into the temple. So we're told exactly which of the offices, the chambers he brought into. They're invited to the chamber of this fellow of, 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 of Hanan, who's a man of God. And there's a chamber there. And there's a lot of people there. And Yom has been commanded to give, invite them in and give them, a, give them some wine to drink. So he's fun. So it says, Vatain, Yermio is speaking in the first person. Vatain Rufnei 
So I brought them uh, bowls full of wine and cups before the men of the house of the Rechavites. And I said, have some wine. So they say to him, yo, we don't drink wine. We don't drink wine. Why not? Because our father means the patriarch of the family. Who was the patriarch of the Rechabites? Lo and behold, Yonadav ben Rechab. This fellow <coughs> is the patriarch of the so-called Rechabites. And he commanded us forever, never drink wine. No, none of you drink ever, ever drink wine. Once again, if we see this, if we see this, if I say if, if we see them as Nazarites or something related to Nazarites, some kind of Nazaritic sect or whatever, then once again, it's clear that the non-drinking of wine is not something you don't do for 30 days. The non-drinking of wine is forever. Not only in the lifetime of it says you and your children forever. So the family, not just his children, but also his grandchildren. None of us ever drink wine. Why not? We were commanded not to do it. Because Yonadav, our patriarch, said, never drink wine, ever, Adolam, forever. And now, so we're familiar with not drinking wine from the Torah, and we would connect it probably in one form or another to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Nazir of the, of the Torah. But then when we come to the next verse, which is very interesting. This is a very interesting verse, verse number seven. And furthermore, they say to Yermiel, the prophet Yermiel, they say, he also commanded us, Yonadav commanded us not to build houses, not to plant sow fields or plant vineyards, nor should you own any, any such things. You shall live in tents all the days of your life in order that you live upon the land long time, the land I shall attempt where you, in, which, in which you are dwelling, Gorim Sham. So here we have something which is something to think about in this verse. And it wasn't just about the wine. But there's additionally, not only you can't drink wine, you can't plant vineyards. And more than that, you don't live in houses. You don't own fields. You don't live in houses. Rather, you dwell in tents. And what is that all about, actually? The land of Sharatem Garim Sham. Not Yoshvim, but Garim. Very often the word Ger is a stranger. In other words, the commandment to the Rechabites, given by their patriarch, Yonadav ben Rechav, is that you never settle in any particular place. You can't have a bayit, because a bayit means that you are established in one place. A tent is something you can pick up and move. So you can't actually, you can't own land. That's what we're commanded not to, not to have fields, not to have land. When you read the Chumash, 
it's pretty clear that the Chumash speaks of owning land. Chumash speaks about, yes, the land may be returned during the Yovel year, but the Torah speaks about all kinds of tithes. You must be given a corner of your field and you have to give maser, etc. But what the Chumash presumes is that the people who come into the land actually have land. But Yonadav ben Rechav has commanded his people, his greater family, not to own any land whatsoever. Then that's not to own land, but not to build a house. To buy it lotivno. So what is this all about? And it starts with, before you get to not having a house, it starts with not drinking wine. <clears throat> so I think, first of all, if we, the question, of, again, when you come to the, to the Nazir, is the Torah, again, never told us what a Nazir actually is. The Torah said what a Nazir does and doesn't do in terms of prohibitions. Must grow his hair long, can't drink wine, can't come into contact with the dead. What the Nazir actually is, that the Torah never said. But this prohibition of not drinking wine, how, is, how does one understand the prohibition which the Torah has that the Nazir should not drink wine, not just wine, great, great products, but, but wine, right? What is that all about? So there were two different possibilities that were in, in raised, I think, over the course of these few sessions. One is that the drinking of wine is fundamentally some kind of pleasurable activity. And there's an element of, let's say, asceticism, separation from the, from the pleasures of the world as, as, represented by the, um, as represented by the wine. That's one possibility. That's one possibility. And there's another possibility that the drinking of wine, and this is very firmly within Jewish tradition, that wine basically is a social drink. A mishteh. Right? Mishta means a place somewhere you drink, but a Mishta is the party. So the idea of the Nazir is not so much to reject the pleasures of the world, but to reject human companionship. That the Nazir is the separatist in the sense that the Nazir separates herself, himself from, from human society. The second of these possibilities, that the idea of separation from human society fits in very well with these two verses from Yermiel, because you don't drink wine, never drink wine, because wine is something that you, we associate with, with connecting to other people. But our father Yonadav commanded us to live apart. So not just not drinking wine, not to build a house. Because when you build a house, basically, that's where you are. But you shouldn't build a house because you're only gayrim, as it were. You move about from place to place. You never settle into one particular place. Um, the truth is that it reminds me very much, and we're talking over here, basically, you might want to call them Bedouins, or the Ram. They used to be called gypsies, but that's not a word we use anymore. But the, that's exactly how they live. The Ram, largely in Romania. And they basically never settle in any one place. This way, they kept their own identity. Kept their own identity because they're never in one place. So they're in one town today where they would pick up and move. And they have, it's very interesting, they would have these various rituals centering around family. And we have Shiva, we have Shoshim. They had much longer. If some relative dies, if you're living in South Carolina or something, a relative dies in, in, you know, in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles, 
then they would all just go to Los Angeles for a couple of months. And this way, you're never in a place. So what Yonadov ben Reichov, that's what it sounds like to me over here, that it's about not settling into any particular place. And you would settle in by owning land, or you would settle in by having a house. But our father commanded us to, to, to have neither. You, you move about from place to place. You're never part of the society in which you live in a particular place, but you're never really part of that society. And that's reflected also in the first verse of not drinking wine. So it turns out that Yonadov ben Rechav, whether they're actually in the Zirim or not, I can't say, but it's certainly from the first verse, not the, and the story revolves around the wine. They're being tested over here by Yom Yom. God commands Yom Yom to test them. Let's see if they really stick to their principles or not. And the response, of course, is, uh, yes, we, we don't drink wine. That's not what we do. And we don't own houses and we don't own fields. Um, we dwell in tents. And this way we ensure our own identity, I would say. But we also ensure something else. Our father said that this way you'll be able to live in the way, be in the land a long time. What lies behind this assumption, behind this assumption, behind the command, I believe, is the sense that if you get involved in society, in the trappings of society, that inevitably it will have a negative impact on, on, your, on your own community. So at, at the core of it is a fundamental distrust of the larger society, of the elements of society. That's what it sounds like over here. Now, in the case of Yermio and the society in which he functions, he has deep misgivings about the society in which he functions. He's constantly talking about exile and about destruction. So the command of the response of the Rechavites will sit well with Yermio, clearly, as it does, and it will sit well with God as well. Uh, before I continue, now, in other words, but the point I want to make about Nazir is that, in fact, this is one way to read the Nazir story. In other words, in, when you read the Chumash, you don't get that. You, you can read the Chumash very simply. The Nazir is a man or woman who's a regular, normal Jew, but decides that this Nazir decides that she, he wants to experience what it means to be, a, be holy unto God, to be the high priest. And the Torah says, you want to be a high priest? You can be a high priest for a short amount of time, but you can't just leave the place where you are. The Chumash spends a lot of time in those chapters setting up the society. This tribe is here, this tribe is there, etc. It's, it's a community, this is a society. You want to leave it temporarily? That's fine, but you can't leave it permanently. That's what emerges from the Chumash. What emerges from these other texts, and that's my point, these other biblical texts, if we assume that Yonadab ben Rechav is a kind of quasi-Nazir, then that's something else that emerges completely, which is that the Nazir is not a normal Jew who for 30 days isn't drinking wine. The Nazir is a different kind of life. And the, the biblical character, if we assume that they're Nazirim or quasi-Nazir, whether it's Shimsha, whether it's Shmuel, whether it's Elio, whether it's Yonadav, this is a completely different sense one gets from these four characters, totally different. And that is possibly a way to read the Bible, that the wine is simply representing something very different. You know, the Nazir is, in the Chumash, Nazir is a, leaves a relatively normal life in the Chumash. He has a family, he has a husband, a wife, family. I mean, there's no sense that you withdraw from society completely. 
and it's only temporary. That's true in the Chumash. But it's certainly not true of someone Yonadav ben Rechov. Yonadav ben Rechov is living a kind of nomadic existence. And maybe they're living in the desert. Maybe they wander around the desert. We'll, we'll, we'll see in a couple of minutes where the Rechavites might have come from. There's no evidence here where they came from. But there is one verse elsewhere which, which others, some scholars have suggested, might be a clue about the, about, about the Rechavites. Okay. Let us continue now with, so this is what they say to, um, this is what they say to, uh, to Yermiel. Okay, so let's see what the response is now. This God is saying this to Yermiel. He invites them in, maybe expects them to drink the wine, but lo and behold, they refuse. Okay, so they're still talking in verse number eight. And we, Nishma means we obeyed. We accepted, accepted or obeyed. Yonadav ben Rechav, our patriarch, they say ancestor, our patriarch, and everything he commanded us to do. So we accepted it. Everything that he commanded us, the Kerem, the Sodeh, the Zera, Lo Yiyelanu, Vaneshev Baalim, Vanishma Vanas, Kachar, Shetsivanu, Yonadav, Avinu. So the first thing they say is we have followed, we are commanded. We have made a commitment to accept the commands of our patriarch, our father Yonadav. And we don't deviate from the command of Yonadav, our father. This is going to be critical for what follows in terms of Yermiel, what God will say to Yermiel. Here are these people who have a command, which is not an easy command to keep, to reject a house, not to have a field, um, to constantly move about, have no place. But they all say, listen, this is what our father commanded us to do. And therefore we're gonna, we have to obey the command, the mitzvah, it's the mitzvah. Sivanu, right? It's what they commanded us. Our father commanded us. So we don't do this. Thank you for the offer of the wine in the holy temple. We have to, you know, respectfully refuse. We don't do this. In verse 10, we dwell in tents. We obey everything that our father Yonadav commanded us to do. Now they continue. So what are they doing in Jerusalem? Why are they off in the desert? So when the Buchanetzer came and is invading the land, Yes, we are in the city now. Maybe they're living, I don't know if they live in tents or where they're living, but they explained to Yermio, it is true, we are in Jerusalem, but that's a temporary state because of the attack on the Bukhanetzer. The, the, the kingdoms of the north, the Arameans and the Bukhanetzer attacked the land. We were in the, you know, in, in sight of where he's coming in. So we move, we move all the time. We happen to be in Jerusalem and now we are staying in Jerusalem. But that sounds like a temporary state of being because we, we, we dwell in tents. And we're going to move again. Fine. So this is their explanation to Yermiel, why they respectfully refuse to drink the wine. And now we have God's response. 
Speak to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. God says to them, you would do well, you would learn a good lesson about obeying my commandments, says God. Who come at the Reya Honadav ben Rechav, Asher Tzivad Banav. Look, he says, God says, see how the word of Yonadav has been fulfilled. Asher Tzivad, he commanded his children, Levitish Tot Yayin, Vloshatu Aliyomazev, Kishamu at Mitzvad Avihem. So their father commanded them, and they all obey. And up to this very day, Nobody drinks any wine. You see, and they refuse the wine. So they adhere to the command of their father. Even though it's a difficult command, not to have a home, not to have a field. It's a society in which people own fields and people have homes. All kinds of rules about homes and fields at the end of the book of Ayikra. I mean, people have homes and they have fields. That seems to be one of the ideas of entering into the land, to possess the land. So he made a difficult command and they, they don't deviate from it. Right? The father commanded them, it's a mitzvah, you do the mitzvahs. And so God says, But I talk to you all the time, every day. Every day I make the same, uh, I speak to you all the time, through my, through, through my prophets, I speak to you constantly. Every morning, up early in the morning, first thing on the news, I said, and God says through Yemio, sort of a Kavol Chomer, he says he commanded them to do something different and he commanded it one time and all the family listens to the command of the patriarch who was given one time of a difficult command. And God says, me, I'm commanding you every single day. Like early in the morning, I get up bright and early and through my prophets, I command you. And what do I command you to do? Not to worship other gods in order to return to the land, to give you land, not to take away, but to give you the land, right? And yet you refuse to listen to me. Isn't that absurd, says God? Here, this one person makes a statement one time and everybody listens to it. Notice the word, the mitzvah, siva. He's, he's commanded them and they obey the commandment. And what, what about me? I, I command you every, every day for, for your betterment, to possess the land. And then the next verse, ki ben et mitzvat asher they fulfill the commandment of their father. Notice the word mitzvah appears over and over again. They do the mitzvahs. But my people, my own people, pay no attention to me. L'chein. Therefore, now we have the conclusion. Therefore, says the God of Israel, so as far as 
I'm concerned, said God, this is why the evil will be for you. Because you've had so many warnings and you refuse to listen. I constantly tell you the same thing. You refuse to listen. But as far as the Rechabites are concerned, but to the house of the Rechabites, but the Rechabites are the opposite because you obey the commandments, his commandments, says God, I will, I will actually um, bless you. Right? There will be never cease to be the light of Yonadav ben Rechav will remain standing before me. So this is the story of Yonadav. If you haven't seen this chapter before, it's a very interesting chapter. Here you have an entire chapter devoted to this person, Yonadav ben Rechav, who was mentioned tangentially in the book of Malachim in one, one or two verses. We never heard of the guy before. He is zealous for God. That we do know. That's the picture you get in Vlachim. You have a zealot for God. His name is Yonadav ben Rechov. But over here, we find out more about Yonadav ben Rechov. He is zealous for God. That's an Elijah quality. But he also has the other quality of Elijah. He's completely separate. He's, you think about the Nazir. The word Nazir means to be separate. It's one of the meanings of Nazir, to separate. And here you have somebody who completely separates from society. And God, uh, in this context at least, is praising Yonadav ben Rechav and his followers. And in contrast, is uh, condemning Israel for not keeping God's commandments. I guess one question would be, what do we take from this chapter over here? But one thing we can certainly take from the chapter is, at least in this chapter, maybe every context is different, but in this chapter, the people who decide to break from society to keep their own path um, are ones, are people that God actually commands. And God says, I will bless them and they'll stand before me. The others are going into exile, exile, destruction, etc. So if we think of him as a kind of Nazir, I, I would say, I see this as a quasi Nazir. And in particular, here you have the not drinking wine, which we don't have any other place. The only one we have, in the case of Shim, even the case of, of Shimshon, we, we may have that. Yes, Shimshon, we have it. But apart from Shimshon, we don't have the not drinking of the wine. Both with, if you think of Shmuel, you think of, uh, of Shalom, you think of uh, Eliyahu, it's about the hair. But in this particular case, it's about the wine. Let me just stop here for a minute. And I have one other thought about this, Yonadav ben Rechav. But let me stop for a moment and take comments or questions. We still have time, right? What time is it? Uh, we're about five minutes over. I'm happy to give a few more, more minutes. Five minutes over? It's 10.35. Okay, let, me, let me just leave the question. Let me make one more comment then about this Yonadav ben Rechav business. He actually appears in, a, in, a, in another verse. He appears in two other verses in the Bible. And I'll mention one of them in particular. It's not a verse that most of us are necessarily familiar with. Why would we be? This is a verse that is found in the last book of the Bible, in Devrei Hayamim. It's the first book of Chronicles, Devrei Hayamim. It's chapter two. And book of Chronicles begins with 
names. These are names of the various people that from the beginning of time. Let me see if I can find this verse very quickly. Um, I have it on screen also. Did you find the verse? Where's the verse? One second. Yes, this is found in Divriyayamim, First Chronicles, chapter two. Um, the last verse of chapter two of First Chronicles, the very last verse. I'll start with verse number 54. B'nai Salma, the sons of Salma. Remember Salma from the generations of Ruth. This is from the Trump Judah, right? You have the parents to, 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 to David, King David. In the middle, there's Salma. U'b'nai Salma. Beit Lechem and the Tofati, Itchrod, Beit Yoav, Katsi, Amay Nachati, Atzari. These are names of different descendants of Salma. And verse 55. The families of the scribes that dwelt at Yabitz. Tratim, Shimotim, Shuvatim. These, here they translate the Tirahites, the Shimiahites, and the Sukkothites. Who are these people? Hema Hakidim Haboim, Mechamat Avi Beit. These are the Canaanites who came from Hamad, father of the house of Rechav. So here we have the house of Rechav mentioned in Divrei Hayamin in conjunction with the tribe of Judah, but the chronicler connects the Rechabites with the Kinim. Now, who are the Kinim is the question. Now, if the Kinim is the same as Kani, we know who Kani is. The Kani are descendants of, uh, of uh, Yitro. Yitro's descendants are called the Kani. They are typically not Jews. Doesn't sound like they're Jews, but they are friends of the Jews. Yitro is a friend of the Jews, and the Kani are friendly with the, with, with, with the Jews. So if the Rechabites are tied in with the Kani in some way, it actually leaves open some very interesting possibilities as to the Rechabites may in fact be. They well may be non-Jewish actually, but some kind of a group or sect that travels about, that lives amongst the Jews and uh, is, uh, you know, have a certain way of living. They don't own homes. They're sort of out, ultimate outsiders. And uh, if we connect them to Kani, we would say these are outsiders who are friends of Israel, allies of Israel. They have their own particular rules, approach, etc. Yitro himself in the Torah is a great friend of Israel, great friend, Moshe's greatest friend. But at the end of the day, Yitro goes home. And Moshe doesn't go with Moses. Moses offers him to come along. And Yitro is leaves or is sent away. So there's something to think about over here, just to conclude the thinking here about the, the, the role of the outsider. One of the things that the Nazir raises, one of the questions is the role of the outsider. To what degree it's healthy for, not just for the individual, but for society. The reason I mention this over here is we, on the Nazir, we always focus on the individual. 
but the Nizirim seem to be a group. You told the prophets not to prophesy into the Nizirim, you gave wine. That sounds like it's a group of people called Nizirim, not just a particular person. In the case of Yonadav ben Rechav, if we see him as a kind of quasi-Nazir, it's very interesting because here it's not on the individual level so much. It's on the community level. Is it a good thing to have within society different groups of people who are participating to some extent and separating to some extent? It raises a whole host of very interesting questions. So I thought we would conclude in the term of the biblical Nazir with Yonadav ben Rechav. So we discussed Shimshon, obviously, Shmuel, of course, Eliyahu, I've shown them to some extent, and we include our little study with Yonadav ben Rechav, which I think raises a host of very interesting questions. I'm looking, very much looking forward to the study of Mishnah as part of the larger Rifka Rosenwein Mishnah project that we're getting deeply involved in in many different ways. And one of them is that after Pesach, I'll do my little part in teaching a class on the Mishnayot of Nazir. And there I see, you see that the Mishnah, I think it has a very different presentation of, of, of who the Nazir is. So anyway, thank you for participating. And we'll, uh, I guess we'll stop at this point. Looking forward to learning with you in the future. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And face out. Take care, everyone, and have a good day. So we're not meeting next week. This is it. This is the last question for now. Um, there will there are other classes that have their final sessions next week, and then classes will resume after Pesach. Oh, this thank was you. wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi Silver, and to all of you with your comments. I learned so much. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.